talk to you about worship. And, and last week I spoke a little bit about the whole idea, I think, therefore I am. And we had a bit of a go at Descartes on that. Because actually, biblically, often uh, it is our loves that define us. It is our deepest desire. It is our vision, our telos, the direction that we go in life. The weight of our life where we lean in a certain direction makes all of who we are. And I was encouraging you that the weight of your spiritual journey should lean always towards Christ. Christ Jesus. And when you lean towards Christ Jesus, that weight makes all of the difference. So how do I begin this series on worship? As we explore areas of of society and the way that we worship. It's a a difficult sermon for me, this one. Because I'm going to attempt to explain to you perhaps one of the most intriguing and most difficult texts in Genesis, as we start to understand worship. But as way of introduction, you know, human beings, as I said last week, are always leaning towards something. We're always leaning in a certain direction. We're always going in a certain way. We're always looking to be happy. We're always searching, as I quoted last week, for the castle in the clouds. We're looking for that moment of where we gain our deepest desires. And as we gain our deepest desires, we become content, we think. We become happy. Why is it, however, that when we gain our deepest desires, we never actually find what we are looking for? Have you noticed that? The people who get to where they want to be discover that when they get to where they want to be, it's not as they expected it to be. They receive their deepest desires. They step into that place, but somehow there's something missing. It's well documented and well quoted about young actors and actresses who become celebrities that it seems to happen that they seem to be reasonably nice people, gifted in ability. But suddenly, when celebritism hits and they become famous and well-known, that they seem to morph, not into often greater people and more wonderful people, but they often morph into monsters or beasts or become demanding or become... uh, uh, Have you noticed this in the media? A reasonable person who has a dream and a desire becomes famous celebrity and suddenly it's like they become monsters. You may have seen it. You may have even watched the Kardashians. And, and no, oh, you do. You need to go to set free. Um, and if you don't know who the Kardashians are, uh, don't Google it. Uh, But you may uh, see the very worst of people receive what they want, the riches, the fame and the glory. And yet somehow their base desires, their deepest desire drives them in the wrong direction. Harvey Weinstein. It's almost painful to watch this unfold. There's elements of childishness and yet utter disgrace in terms of 
abuse. Emma Thompson, uh, the English actress, producer, the person behind, of course, much of uh, Dunkirk recently, she was interviewed and she was talking about the kind of endemic approach to um, sexual exploitation within the industry. We have messages to Harvey, who himself, 40, what, six-year-old film genius, who got his, his accolades, who is at the highest place within his world, who has the most influence as a movie producer, is suddenly found in a place where... The greatest desire somehow unveils a monstrous disconnection about how one should conduct oneself as a professional in life. And we're shocked. But should we be shocked? You see, in Romans, um, Romans 1 and verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Why is it that when we are given over to the most basic desires of who we are, that rather than this being a wonderful experience, it actually takes us in the wrong direction in life? Why is it that when we receive our deepest desires, it does not give us that connection? to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. This is the answer right here. We move our affection and we move our focus from, from the creator to worshiping created things. You will never find satisfaction, I'm afraid, when you worship created things. You will only find true satisfaction... When you worship the Creator. As Jewish theologians have pointed out, the message of the Old Testament is a great battle that takes place between the nation and God and the battle to resist idol worship is the narrative in the Old Testament. To resist idols. That we don't worship idols. And anything can be an idol, can't it? The things we buy, the things we own, the people we're around. We, as human beings, lean towards creating idols within our lives. And the challenge here is, when we come to worship, is what are we truly worshipping in our lives? What is the idol that exists within our heart? What is the idol that is at work? The Israelites struggled with either worshipping the true God or creating numerous idols in life. And human beings always create places of worship. We may not acknowledge it. You could describe consumerism as, as, as a place of worship. You can describe even our glorious 
magnificent cathedrals in the center of our biggest cities as cathedrals consumerism. You walk in them and they have beautiful skylines and light. They have wonderful environment that guides you. They even have greeters at the door and transactions where you can bring your sacrifice. I'm talking about our moles, right? They, are, they play music in the atmosphere. They are glory. I'm, I'm not talking about our mole. Uh, but gives me a headache. Uh, but you know, in Vancouver, and I've been to West Edmonton Mall. You walk, it's, it's, a, it's a, a cathedral to all I want to buy. And I can even be baptized there on the water slides, which were for many years the biggest in the world. You obviously haven't been. <laughs> well, you haven't been baptized there. I took Michelle there. I said, darling, she was my young bride. I said, darling, I feel the Lord one day may call us to Canada. Would you like to join me? I have a, a conference to speak at in a beautiful city called Edmonton. <laughs> she said, yes, I would, darling. It was February we went. <laughs> I took her to the West Edmonton Mall in hopes that that may seduce her. It failed. On the front of the newspaper, it said, officially, Edmonton, minus 40, the coldest place on the whole planet. (laughs) We worship, we create worship, we are worshippers that create. And we love that transaction. We create idols. So what is at the heart? Well, I want to take you back and tell you a little story of a man called Abraham. Abraham went from what we would say an average spiritual leader to the greatest historical spiritual leader in the Old Testament, the father of all faith, of which three billion people around the globe adhere in some way to Abraham. So he's a pretty important person. The Jews, uh, the Muslims, and the Christians describe Abraham as significant and a key person. But what made him so key, so significant within his journey. Well, we start the journey in Genesis chapter 12, where we see that the Lord had said to Abraham, go from our country, your people are in your father's household, to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and you will make your name great, and you will be blessed. And I will bless those who Bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Amazing commissioning. He was willing to do and follow his first calling. He left his land, he came to the promised land, he looked there, he ended up in Egypt. God met with him and walked with him around the land and said, I will give you all of this. And then he, he rejoiced and, and a, a civil war broke out before, between the kingdoms. Lot was then um, taken away into captivity. And and there's a beautiful line where it says, Abraham gathered 300 men on their donkeys and they rode off to get. That's my favorite line in the Bible. 
It's like a scene from Shrek. And off they go. Let's do it. Get the donkeys going. Are you serious? And off we go. Rescued Lot. And then there's the vision of the splitting of the animals and the covenant where God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to guide you. A journey of faith. Uh Uh-uh, there's a problem. Sarah is barren. I need a son. I need a firstborn. And so they wait and they wait until they receive the joyous news. They wait, as Hebrews 11 says, and verse 8, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Have you ever felt like that? You do not know where you are going in your journey, but you're going by faith. And he went on this journey by faith. And then we hear the news, the joyous news. Sarah is pregnant. She's 90 years old. Hallelujah. There is still hope for you. And you know how people say there are 3,000 promises in the Bible. Hallelujah. And you can claim every one of them. Hmm, I wouldn't claim that one if I was you. 90 years old. Abraham was 100 years old. And what do they call young Isaac? Which means laughter. (laughs) They looked, look at us, 90 years old. Let's call him laughter. Because the Lord had a laugh. And then they rejoiced and they laughed and they were blessed. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, Your offspring I will give this land. Your offspring. We've now got a son. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Powerful text. This is his first calling. This is the calling to create a nation. This is his first calling to create this moment. Do you know Abraham had a second calling? And this is where I want to lead us to worship, to a very uncomfortable moment. An uncomfortable moment theologically, an uncomfortable moment emotionally for us. A difficult portion of scripture, but it helps us understand worship. So I'm going to attempt. You see, then the Lord spoke to Abraham in his second calling... To climb another mountain. And in his second calling in Genesis 22 and verse 1, sometime later God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, laughter, and go to the region of Moriah. And sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Whoa. Excuse me. You have taken me on this journey. And some theologians will say that Isaac was around 30 at this point. You have taken me on this journey. And you want me now to sacrifice the son? My only son? 
Well, many commentators who have looked at this from a secular point of view have said, well, there you go. This shows something very clearly, that if you hear from God and the will of God, you can do the most desperate and horrible things if you say God told you to do it. Look at the Crusades. Look at uh, what has been has happened with the Inquisition. Look at the burning of the witches in Salem. Look at the terrible things. If we say God said to us, we can just do horrible things. And this is, seems like the most horrible of things. It's uncomfortable. And I'm going to explain it to you and help you understand the context because context is everything and context will lead us somewhere incredibly interesting and will lead us to our own hearts. So although this is uncomfortable, really, God is testing him. And as he tests him, and you notice the Lord came to Abraham and tested him. What he was saying was, have I just become a means to an end or do you truly serve me? And this is the danger that we all live with our faith as a life of worshippers, that our faith becomes simply a means to an end. I pray, I get what I want, I get my son, I get my laughter, I succeed, I prosper, and hooray, God is like a means to an end. But really what the Lord is saying is, do you truly trust me? And do you truly Love me. That is the answer that Jesus will ask of every one of us in our life. How are you doing? Do you truly trust God? And do you truly love God? You listen to that statement, rightly so, and you say to yourself, but, okay, I understand the testing and the trusting and not putting other idols in front of God. But this is difficult. Because then Abraham said, yes, Lord. He went, as we see in the next verses. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants, his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out and the place God had told him about. And on the third day... Interesting this third day. Abraham looked up and saw a place in the distance. Let's pause here for a moment. Let's talk about context. As a Harvard theologian, Jewish theologian, because I think we can learn a lot from our Jewish theologians, Harvest, he spoke... Um, John Lennon's son, the Jewish theologian, put it this way. You cannot work with this text unless you really understand the context. And the context is to do with the firstborn son. You see, in our individualistic age... The firstborn son, yes, is special, yes, is wonderful, but the firstborn sons, and you may be a firstborn son, I am a firstborn son, and my dad was a firstborn son. 
Michael Collins, and my granddad was a firstborn son, Philip Collins. Wonder where he got, he, I got my name from. And then there are nine children in that clan, which are the Collinses. And when we all get together, once a year at Christmas, there's about 90 of us that get together in a room, and as you can imagine, it is a very quiet and somber affair. <laughs> really, it is very Irish. And so, there, that is the family. And now I have a firstborn son called Josiah. He's, now, I'm talking to Josiah, and I say, Josiah, what do you want to do? He's 10 in the future. And he's worked it out that in his career, his individualistic career, he is going to become a robot designer and engineer. He's Googled this and discovered that they earn about 150,000 US dollars a year. That pleases him (laughs) as he only gets $5 a week. And then he has to do chores to gain anything like that. So he's very excited about that. And he then said to me the other day, Dad, I realize I'm going to become a robot engineer, a programmer, and that's what he does for fun. He's he's coding, takes after his mom, uh, and he loves this. And I'm going to have to move to America, he said, because that's where I need to go to Silicon Valley. That's where the great robotic revolution will take place. And we go, well, what about mum and dad? You'll be fine. What about your sisters? You don't want to care for them? No chance. I'm off. Goodbye. San Francisco, here I come. I love full house. And I'm going to move in there. And so, for those of you who have children, well, this is is not right. But we we find it difficult. Now, in the scriptures, the firstborn son is this. The firstborn son is the hope of the family. The firstborn son is the one who fulfills the dream of the family and the clan. The firstborn son brings prosperity to a Jewish clan and and family. The firstborn son ushers in. It wasn't about individualistic wealth. It is about the wealth and the prosperity of the family. And getting the family that is blessed. And the family that prospers. And all of the clan that enjoys the blessing of God and that does not flow through an individual as it sense an individualistic thinking it flows through the firstborn son and that's why Abraham rejoiced because the firstborn son is everything and he inherits the wealth and the position and the power that's why in Egypt The firstborn sons were wiped out with the plague because the greatest judgment and sin and debt that would be owed to God was that God took the firstborn sons of Egypt because of the sinfulness of Egypt. And only those that were under the blood escaped the curse of the death of the firstborn sons. It's still uncomfortable though, isn't it? Because... In scriptures, it makes it pretty clear 
that the firstborn son has to forfeit and make a payment. The firstborn son is responsible for the legacy, the blessing, and the prosperity of the family. But if sin and idolatry and rebellion enter into the family, it is the firstborn son that has to go and forfeit and put it right. And you know this when you look, haven't got time to look at all the scriptures, but you look at the scriptures here in Exodus 22 and Numbers 3, you see that the firstborn son has to go and forfeit certain things. If the firstborn son and the family sin, they first of all, he has to go to the temple and there he has to sacrifice to the Lord, an expensive sacrificial process where he sacrifices on behalf of the family so that the blessing of God could come on the family. The family has gone array and the firstborn son goes and does this. Secondly, he goes and serves. Firstborn sons would go into the temple, the tabernacle, and there serve. So to redeem the family, he had to sacrifice. To redeem the family, he had to serve. To redeem the family, the firstborn son had to redeem and pay a price. And what the story is saying is, Abraham, your focus has shifted from me and my calling and all of your hope and all of your belief and all of your joy has shifted to the one thing you love the most and that is Isaac. I may have given it context, but it doesn't make it feel less uncomfortable. I understand that. And what God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, your faith has shifted somehow because I'm testing you. Your faith has shifted from, from loving and serving and listening to me to the most precious thing being that son, whereas the most precious thing should be following my voice and serving the God of heaven and putting God forward. And when you serve me and put me first, you will be greatly blessed. So get your priorities right. But Lord, you are good. You are holy. You're a God of promise. You're a God of grace. You're a glorious God. And he follows his first calling. And in verse 5, we see something that really gives it away. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We. It's tantalizing in the Hebrew. What is taking place here? He's saying, I'm going to step up onto the mountain and I'm holding in balance that God is righteous, that God is holy, but God is love and God is good and God is wonderful and God's promised me a mighty nation. How is God going to do this? Have you ever been there? Well, you know God's good and God's loving and yet the 
pain you're traveling through at the moment, you have no idea what God's going to do in it. You never expected to lose that company. You never expected to face that broken relationship. You never expected to travel through that illness. You never expected to be walking this journey towards sacrificing the most important thing in your life. And let me explain something. Every Christian in all of our journeys at some time will be tested by the furnace so that God produces gold in our lives. And so many of us are not willing to be tested by the furnace. Because what does God ultimately want? He wants your whole heart. And this is what the story is about. God's got to do a miracle. We don't know what's going to happen. God's got to do something. But what God truly wants is your whole heart. And let me say, God will always challenge your idols. He will always challenge our worship. He will always refine our hearts and discipline us because he wants to test us and say, who really comes first in your life? If you put me first, Abraham, you will be a blessing to the nations. If you put something else first, then we've got a problem. The firstborn son has to forfeit. So they go up onto the mountain. They build the altar. The boy lies on and Isaac says, Dad, yes. Where is the lamb, the offering that is to be offered today? Don't worry, son. The Lord will provide. He picks up the knife. And as he draws the knife, a voice comes from heaven and says, Abraham, the angel of the Lord, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And there he looked, and in the thicket is the ram. God had provided the sacrifice. But Abraham was willing to go to the very moment where he was willing to lay down all his dreams, all his hopes, all of his love. He was willing to say, I don't understand you, God, but I serve you first. And he looked and he goes, as a goat. And in the Hebrew... Isaac looks up and says, Whew, that was a close one. I don't know what he said. That's what I said. I said, oh, okay, Dad, this little thing's over now. Great, hallelujah. Let's keep to laughing. And there brings the goat out and they sacrifice the goat. And he had, Abraham goes from, let's say, average to becoming apart from the Saviour, the Messiah, becoming the, the greatest figure for half the globe, Abraham becomes the father of faith. So where are you going to land this, Pastor Phil? First of all, can I say that there was another firstborn son that was taken with his father to another mountain. He had nails driven through his hands and through his feet. He was lifted up. 
and he died to save the world. You see, it's only the firstborn son that can pay the debt of the family. It's only the firstborn son that brings hope and dreams and prosperity to the family. It's only the firstborn son that can achieve the redemption and pay the forfeit. And it's only the firstborn son of heaven, Jesus Christ, who was incarnated into the body of a baby and lived amongst men and on that day was crucified on the cross and he experienced death itself. The firstborn son died for the family of this world. It took three days, but the firstborn son gave it all up. The firstborn son did it. And you and I are part of the family Of the firstborn son. I am part of the clan we call the church. I am a believer. I am part of this family. And the legacy always and the inheritance comes through the firstborn son. And the inheritance for you and I as born again spirit filled Christians. Who know the relationship with the creator ourselves. We are blessed because our firstborn son on the third day rose from the grave. You are blessed. You are part of this nation. You are part of this land. You are part of the church of God, the firstborn son. So when we sing that song, Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. Do you remember this from the 70s? Let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left leg, nod your head, turn around, bang somebody in the face. (laughs) Goes back to Father Abraham, the father of faith. And what we see is the reenactment of this firstborn son who was going to be sacrificed we see the great shadow of what would happen for the world. So God had it in hand. So first of all, you will be a better parent if you give your children to God utterly and trust that God will work than trying to control them and putting them first in your life. Secondly, you will be a better business owner, employee, if you put God first and have no other idols and allow God to bless you. You will go from average Christianity to exploding because you have got your priorities right. You... You'll be a better wife, a better husband. If you say, I serve God with all my heart first. I have no other idols. But because I do that, I love my wife. I love my husband more. Because I've, I've, I've nailed the issue about what I love first. What is number one. What I worship. 
and what is my deepest desire. And for many of us, we may need to go on a mountainside in our minds, lay down our Isaacs, whatever they are, that terrific business you own, that terrific marriage you have, that amazing intellect you hold, that incredible career, and just say, Lord, I will always serve you first beyond my Isaacs. And when the Lord sees us as true worshippers in that way, the blessing of God comes. Put God first. Put his desire first. Hand it all over to him in your life. Put him first. We all must do that. Uncomfortable passage, but a powerful message. It is hard for us to relate at times to the Bronze Age tribal clan. But it's very good for us to relate to the very firstborn son of heaven. You now have his legacy. You are benefiting from his inheritance. You and I are going to live as the clan of God forever and ever. God has given you the greatest gift, which is eternal life. Wow. I am grateful, dear Father, as I come to you in the name of Jesus, my precious Savior, that you have communicated with humanity repeatedly about the great redemption. I know there's nothing I can do that will pay for my sins. I can't forfeit anything as a firstborn son. But you are my son. I follow you, Lord Jesus. And I thank you. And I pray, Lord, that you will give me courage to lay my life. I confess, Lord, it's a good life here. My family, my children, my career my intellect, my ego. Every area of my life, I lay it on the altar and say, Lord, you first. I desire you first in my life. I ask, Lord, that for all of my dear family and fellow clan members, that we will all have the courage to lay down our Isaacs and put you first as our deepest desire will be to worship the Lord God Almighty. We recommit our lives to you this morning and say, yes, Lord, I tear down the idols of my heart in the name of Christ. Amen.